Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, and welcome to another edition of Direct Snap. This is episode nine of our outstanding podcast. I know I've been gone for about a month. But we're back getting this podcast kicked off. And if you're not familiar with Direct Snap, this is a show where we address controversial football topics that many want to either tap dance around or avoid completely. And we're going to have a great topic of discussion today on football perspective. But again, you can hit us up on Twitter. Hit me up on Twitter at FBall Game Plan. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and also Vine under the Football Game Plan tag. And don't forget to check out and subscribe to our Football Game Plan Network, which is located on youtube.com slash football game plan. And if you miss any one of our podcasts and want to hear this recap or maybe other podcasts, which you should do anyway, you can find that archived on our website at footballgameplan.com slash podcast. And I'm so glad to be back on this podcast. I mean, when you look at where I've been over the past month, just in, just in general, this football season, I've been at 32 live football games. That's pro college, even high school last weekend, uh, for the most part, doing some scouting and also doing a lot of color commentary work, which you can find on our website at footballgameplan.com slash TV network, and which is an exciting thing in itself because that just allows us at Football Game Plan to continue to grow our brand and continue to show that we can do more than one thing. But 32 live games, 33 in, in, in total because Tehran was able to go out to the San Jose State San Diego State game and, and it's just a lot that I've learned you know just from let's just say from the broadcasting standpoint because when you're watching two teams get out there and compete you're noticing what's going on on the field you're noticing what's going on right next to you in the booth but you also have to keep in mind the 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 magnitude of the game and what goes into a football game and it's funny because when I'm out there scouting you know when I go to these games every Saturday it's a little bit different um, than when I'm in the booth broadcasting because I'm just looking at player traits and players uh, on the field, just how they move and how they play and, you know, getting scouting notes. But in a booth, you really get a good feel for how coaches call plays, and that way you can better predict what's about to come up next or you get a good feel for their tendencies and things of that nature. You can do that in scouting, but on the broadcast side, it's a little bit different because you're noticing – these things play out in, in full time because you have to talk about them during the broadcast. But the one thing I noticed that, you know, college coaches are a little bit different than NFL coaches, and they are both different than high school coaches. Um, when you look at a high school coach, his job is mostly just, you know, motivating and, and keeping these guys in tune because these are young guys. They're impressionable players, uh, you know, let's say between the ages of 14 to, to 17 or 18 and your job mainly, you don't have to really dive deep into X's and O's for high school, but it's mostly about getting these guys to believe in themselves and believing that they can win and, and motivating them to stay motivated throughout the course of a game. You saw it many times during this past weekend. I was at the uh, DCSAA state championship game, a Class A championship, and a semifinal game in 4A with Gonzaga versus uh Eastern High School, I'm sorry, Gonzaga versus Friendship Collegiate in a championship game with Sidwell Friends versus uh, Eastern High School in D.C. And this this upcoming weekend, I'll be down in Delaware for their state championship game as well, doubleheader uh, on Saturday. So you'll see me back in the booth again with NFSH, NFHS, I'm sorry, network.com. Uh, so check that out. You can check out all the broadcasts that I've been on with Georgetown and uh, the ECAC bowl games, but the the college coaches, I found that, you know, it's similar to NFL where you're more of the CEO as far as you're trusting your assistant coaches to do their jobs. And you are mainly in the role of the overseer, overseer of the program or what was going on. You're managing the situations more so than you are coaching players. Now, some coaches are able to do both. Uh, some may coach a position, some may call plays, but for the most part, coaches are just being able to manage the game, manage the situation. Okay, you coach the position, I'll coach the situation, and together we'll win this ball game. NFL coaches are the same way. Uh, it's a little bit different because, again, you're coaching guys that 
make much more money, uh, way more money than you. But it's just interesting to see that I think the game plan from one to one level to the next is essentially the same, you know, and it's still a passionate game. And it, it really brings you back as a player and as a coach. And I do miss coaching, man. I mean, every game I broadcast, it's funny because when I'm scouting a game, I miss playing. When I'm broadcasting a game, I miss coaching. And I really want to get back into coaching. Um, eventually, I'll, I'll dive back in there. But it's just that when you learn how you learn different styles. So most of the games I've attended obviously have been on the East Coast, the Northeast, from Boston or from New Hampshire all the way down to D.C., Maryland, as far out west as Pittsburgh last weekend as they played Miami. But you get to see a, a good brand of football, wide range of of styles and, and players and prospects. And I just, you know, and I know I'm probably rambling and not making sense, but I just came back with a greater appreciation of the game and and the coaching aspect of it and the preparation that goes in. You know, these guys pour a lot into these game plans and practice and after practice. Uh, the kids pour a lot into the, you know, their preparation, you know, from the weight room, um, you know, to, to preparing for the opponent by watching film. And, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's going to lose. And you hate it for, for one side to win and one side to lose. But that's the game you play. But I, I've noticed that um, a lot has changed since I played and coached. Uh, one would be the advent of, let's say, the spread offenses. You know, you've seen, you've seen more of this nowadays as opposed to when I was in high school and in college. High school, we ran strictly a base pro-style offense. You know, I formation, you know, a little bit of option here and there, you know, vertical passing game, you know, passing game down the flats, you know, simple pro-style offense. College, we transitioned more to the spread offense, inside zone, outside zone, um, you know, multi-layer passing attacks, checks at the line of scrimmage, things like that. So we were a little bit more on the beginning curve of what you see now, Uh and it was it was interesting to go back to that and then look at what these guys are doing now. You see guys in high school with play play call sheets on their wrists, offensive linemen being able to make checks and changes at the line of scrimmage, which is impressive for these guys. Um, and you also start to see the talent level. So let's say from a Division three level, like I saw at the ECAC bowls from November twenty twentieth to twenty second to last week at Pitt versus Miami. Now where you see the difference in D3 and, and D1, major D1, you see the size difference. Now, guys are fast regardless. They, they have athleticism regardless, but the size difference. So you may look at a Division three defensive end that's 6'3", 230, and he may be, you know, a D1 wide receiver. So, for instance, someone like Tyler Boyd at Pitt, 6'2", 205, may be an outside backer or – you know, a, a defensive end at the Division three level. Same talent, let's say, as far as speed and athleticism is concerned, but physically, you know, he's not – they're not there at that level. But they do have guys that have pro potential, as I noted in these scouting notes and things like that. But I just learned a lot this, this past season, more so than I say I've learned in previous years or previous two years going to these live games and compiling these scouting notes. But it, it's exciting. So – I'm very excited to, to do more broadcasts. I'm trying to get even more booked for next year. I'm pretty sure I'll be doing a lot more Georgetown games, uh, try to get some more uh, college games in other areas, more ECAC bowl games and Division three games. Just trying to continue to grow that brand. I just want to share that with you guys about what I've learned and, and what I've seen and, you know, where we're going. You know, we, we are excited about the future at Football Game Plan. And, you know, we got these books coming out. We have some more books coming out. And if you if you're not familiar, if this is your first podcast, uh, you know the first book we released under Football Game Plan Publishing was Stiff Arming Football Myths, where we looked at 50 of football's greatest fairy tales and attacked those. Um, that's a great read because we see this play out each and every Sunday, you know, and and every Saturday with college football and the NFL. Then last year or this past year, we released two books: uh, Football: A Love Story and What Did Football Teach Me. These were more of your uh, interview type books where we interviewed over 100 current and former player coaches, analysts, entrepreneurs, entertainers, guys that have played football at the high school level, collegiate level, pro level, just telling us why they love the game, what the game taught them, and 
and what they take, what they took from the game and what they use right now in their daily life, whether they're still coaching or in corporate America, what did football teach them how to utilize those skills to what they got going on right now? So those are the three books we release on the football game, but in publishing, I have a personal project coming out this summer, a series of projects coming out this summer on football game plan publishing that I'm excited about. I'm not going to release it right now because I don't want people to steal. You know how people are, man. People tend to steal everything that you do. You know, you say something about a prospect, and instead of just giving you credit for saying something, you'll start to see your reports in their reports, which is frustrating. You know, let's say you break down a game, and you may say something about a scheme or something. Instead of just giving you credit, which is all you really look for, people steal it, and then they, you know, they they champion it as their own thoughts, which is something I truly hate. Um, but we have a series. Of, I have a series of, of books coming out. I know Gene is working on a project as Gene Clemens. I know Teron is working on a, on a project as well. So we may have a bunch of books coming out under Football Game Plan Publishing not all by the same person, you know, so we're going to split up. We're going to have individual projects this year, which is exciting. We're still working to get our draft guide out as well. So we got a lot of good things coming down the pike in, and we've seen tremendous growth over the years. And this year, I think we've made the biggest jump in what we're able to accomplish, both with the books, with our videos, and even myself just doing these broadcasts uh, with these different networks and things like that, which we have gotten great feedback by so stay on the lookout for for more exciting things coming from football game plan and what we got going on but just to say about those live games and what i've seen from the high school to the pro level it's just interesting to see how passion can carry out because these guys i saw last week yeah last weekend at that state championship game you know losing the game on the last play and you're at the five yard line you know and those guys were just devastated to seeing let's say the San Francisco 49ers and the New York Giants game come down to the wire and the Niners lose and just the sheer frustration, but not as bad as these high school kids. But you still you still saw that passion. You still see coaching, you know, still passionate at the NFL level that you see at the high school level. So that is one thing I think hasn't changed. Schematically, you see differences. Size, you see differences. But the passion for the game, which is most important, is something that you don't see. And that's the some, that's the one thing I believe I still have for the game. And I'm trying to slowly work my way back in in the coaching aspect of it somehow, some way. Maybe so. You never know. You never know where you might see me end up. So transitioning into one of the topics I wanted to discuss today, you look at the hypocrisy that's going on in the media with football. It's just something I just am amazed by each and every time we see you know you watch a game or you see people talking about it on whether it's Facebook or Twitter there's just a ton of hypocrisy coming from the media you know for instance prime example Cam Newton for MVP everybody I want to say maybe it's like 98% is in favor of Cam Newton getting MVP and all you see right now is oh Cam Newton is is playing great Cam Newton is this Cam Newton is outstanding oh he's just tremendous he's playing his his tail off despite no weapons blah 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 all this glowing praise for Cam Newton but the funny part is these were the same people pre-draft saying he couldn't read a defense it's going to take him 25 years to learn how to play a position he's played in his, his entire life the things he did at Auburn, running with the football, he won't do in the NFL. Why? Because the NFL players are bigger, stronger, faster. Despite the fact he's playing in a conference in which people consistently say that this is NFL light. The SEC is the best football conference. It has, you know, the 33rd and 34th NFL team. But this guy that's dominating those 33rd and 34th NFL type teams won't do the same thing against guys that he will be also joining in the NFL from the same conference. Dumbness, right? And so, but now you see people, oh, yeah, Cam Newton, blah, blah, blah. He's this, he's that. But you don't, people don't, people, it's funny because I think people really believe Twitter forgets. Twitter does not forget. Twitter does not forget that you had Blaine Gabbert rated above Cam Newton. Twitter does not forget that you said Cam Newton would be a better tight end than he would be a quarterback, even though he has not played tight end at any point in time at the collegiate level. Twitter will not forget the fact that you called his first game 
against the Arizona Cardinals as a rookie when he went over 400 yards passing, a fluke. Twitter won't forget what you said last year that maybe the Panthers need to look to try to find someone to replace Cam Newton because they were 7-8-1. They can't win with Cam Newton. This style of play, they can't win. He's just an average player. But now, because he's playing well, and quietly he's played the same way his entire career, the offense around him has gotten more consistent and slightly better. Defensively, they were stout consistently throughout his career. He's been the same guy. But now everyone, oh, yeah, he's gotten better. He's learned the system. He's playing from the pocket. Get the hell out of here with that nonsense. It's just the hypocrisy that the media has. You also see it with Derek Carr. People act like Twitter didn't remember you saying Derek Carr, he played in a a system uh, that's terrible. He just threw all hitches and bubble screens and slants. They forget the fact that he played with Pat Hill, who is probably one of the best coaches in football history. I love the way he coaches offense. Um, It's about offensive line and you work backwards. So you're going to run a pro style offense. You're going to run the football real well. You're going to operate off play action. Your quarterback is going to turn his back to the defense. People forget that part of Derek Carr's career and focused on the quick slants and bubble screens. Even within that quick slant and bubble screen offense, you still saw the talent that made him what he is right now. He's playing the same way. You don't just change dramatically going from college to pro. You are what you are as a prospect. But people now in the media are acting as if Last year, they didn't say Carr is terrible. He's a bust. Why would they draft Derek Carr? He's terrible. Twitter doesn't forget. A simple Twitter search. I mean, if if people didn't already delete their tweets, because that's another phenomenon that people go and do. They delete tweets. Um, but the media now is acting as if they were always on a Derek Carr train. I mean, it's funny to see, like, people in Houston really were like, oh, we shouldn't draft Derek Carr because of how his brother played. (laughs) That's the dumbest piece of analysis I've ever heard in my life. No two players are the same, even if they're brothers. We've seen this play out. Jared Payton is nothing like Walter Payton. Just because he's Walter Payton's son doesn't make him Walter Payton. He's Jared Payton. He's his own player. Had a solid career with the Montreal Alouettes. Jerry Rice Jr. is not his dad. You know? So no two players are the same. You may have a genetic trait that your father may have had, like height, you know, weight, athleticism. You may have a little speed, but you may not have the same talent. And and that's the part that people miss. Um, and so when you see how people are talking about Derek Carr, you know what? You know how you have a telltale sign of who's these type of people I'm talking about? When you see overly glowingly praising a player. I mean, just going above and beyond. That's the person that is trying to, you know, trying to save face for the nonsense they said probably last week. And, and, you know, when I say media, I'm talking about national media. I'm talking about regional media. I'm talking about local media. I'm talking about guys that write for websites. You know, it's amazing at the, the constant flip-flop. The amount of energy that people spend on flip-flopping and changing directions at, at the drop of a hat and changing their thoughts. You know, someone could write a 10,000-word article, that, you know, about why Cam Newton uh, won't be a successful quarterback, only to then next we talk about how he's the best player he's seen in his, you know, in, in generations. But I just find the hypocrisy. You see it also in college football with the the playoff system. Oh, every, everybody's talking about how the SEC and you got to play in a power five conference and, you know, your strength of schedule has got to be tough. SEC power five strength of schedule. Then you have undefeated Iowa sitting there playing football the right way. And instantly all you hear is, well, they don't play anybody. But but you just said they have power five, you know, football team. They play in the power five conference. And what part of undefeated don't you get? And this is the other part that I hate um, because people think being undefeated is a crime. It's so hard to win a football game, period, high school, college, or pro. And if you're playing in the Big Ten, you're Iowa, you know, your offense isn't quote-unquote dynamic. You're playing football, you're playing efficient football, blocking well, running well, play-action pass, safe passes, not turning the ball over, great defense. You know, what, what part of that is a crime? Kirk Ferris has done a great job this year with that football team. 
again, since since they're not in the SEC, I guarantee you what you'll see. If somehow, some way, Florida finds a way to beat Alabama, people will say Florida deserves to be in a playoff because they beat Bama and they play in the SEC. Meanwhile, Florida got skull dragged last weekend versus Florida State where they only scored two points. 27 to 2. And Florida is about five plays away from being six and five, if we're being honest. If Vanderbilt completed three passes all game, they beat Florida. Florida isn't that good. They're good defensively. They have a good offensive line, a good running game. They're inconsistent at quarterback, and they've been quote-unquote lucky. Yes, your record says you are what you are, and I'm not going to say they're lucky, but they have been lucky. But I guarantee if they beat Alabama, people will say Florida deserves to be in over an undefeated Iowa if they beat Michigan State. So it's just a hypocrisy you see across the board. You see it every day with player stereotypes. And this is one of my favorites because people now are saying that, oh, it's stupid that people thought Camden wouldn't be able to play quarterback. And it's dumb that you called uh, every white receiver a slot receiver. That's not true. It's dumb you call every black quarterback a guy that can't read defenses. Everyone says that now. But watch draft time come. Trayvon Boykin can't read defenses, should be a wide receiver. You're going to see every white running back being instantly talked about as a fullback. Every white receiver going to be instantly compared to Wes Welker, Danny Amendola, Julian Edelman, and lumped into the slot. Never mind the fact that he may not have slot receiver type skills. You're going to see these things play itself out. A guy that has dominated at the lower level, at the small school level, or a non-power five level, instantly get talked about as, oh, well, he didn't play anybody. Even though they just said that it doesn't matter where you play as long as you put up the production. So people will be hypocrites completely. Um, uh, people will be hypocrites when given the opportunity. They may talk that trash now and say, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter you know, what color you are. If you can throw the football, you should play quarterback. It doesn't matter what color you are. If you can run the football, you should play running back and not fullback, you know, corner, not safety. They say that now, but watch draft time. Watch all of the narratives come out and surface itself. You see it each and every year. Same people, same games, different names, same same situations you see play out. Oh, no, I never said that. I never done. No, 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 I believe that, that if you play, if you're, if you're dominant, you know, this guy, they, they'll talk. Here's the thing. They'll talk about a guy like Ali Marpet being great as soon as Ali Marpet is up for evaluation the first thing they bring up oh he played at division three school he can't play this guy is in the NFL he has pro level talent it th- that just tells me that a lot of people shouldn't be doing what they're doing now a lot of people shouldn't be analyzing football a lot and here's the thing I, and I know I'm getting off topic a little bit because I'm talking about media hypocrisy but I feel as though they have to be some sort there has to be some sort of Clear definition of what you are. Here's the thing. I think a lot of people are blurring the line of what they what they want to be and what they are. If you want to be a reporter, be a reporter. If you want to be an analyst, be an analyst. If you want to be a journalist, be a journalist. Some people get confused with their titles. A reporter is someone that reports on what they've seen based on their uh, experiences from being on site each and every day and having real sources because they're there each and every day. That's a reporter. A reporter reports on stuff that they've seen or stuff that they've heard. A reporter is not an analyst. If you're not there every day, you can't be, you can't be a reporter. A, re- a reporter is someone that's strictly fact-based, no opinion. Here's what I've heard. Here's what I've seen. Boom. Report. A journalist is someone that gathers research, which means talking to multiple people, taking a position in the story, diving into the research of it, also maybe interviewing that person that they're writing about or getting multiple views viewpoints from a story and they're just putting a nice bow around it. That's not an opinion piece. Journal- journalism is about seeking out the, those sources, doing that research, doing the groundwork, doing the legwork, and creating a story where you allow both sides to tell that story. You may chime in with a little bit from your perspective, but that's a journalist. An analyst is someone that's giving an account 
based off practical experience on said topic. So let's say if I'm breaking down a game, having played and coached, that makes me an analyst. But you can't be a reporter and then try to break down a game because your level of expertise is not where where that where you can call yourself uh, an analyst. So, for instance, yes, you can be a person that has played and coached, but now is a reporter. I think Albert Breer is a reporter, um, but I think he played quarterback in high school, something like that. But now he's more into the reporting to where if he tries to break down a game, it, it, it won't it'll come across as shoddy. Not saying that he has done this. I'm just using him as an example because I know he did play uh, quarterback in high school, what have you. But that's the difference. If you if you're going to be a reporter, be a reporter. Stay in your lane. You know, you get to your destination faster if you stay in your lane. That's the most important thing. If you want to be an analyst, full fledged, be an analyst. Do the work. Put in the work. Watch the film. You know, try to get better at your craft. Ask questions. Try to talk to coaches. Talk to players. Try to get better at analyzing the game and not just speaking from, let's say, a fan perspective. Don't be a fanalist. You want to be an analyst, not a fanalist. Fanalists get on my nerves. Analysts I can respect. So that's that. I think that puts a nice little bow on the media hypocrisy and the difference between a reporter, a journalist, and an analyst. Which one are you is all ultimately up to how you conduct yourself and the business you you keep. Um, so the, you you can be multiple people, I guess, maybe. You won't be good at any one, but you can't cover a lot of bases. If you want to excel in anything that you do, focus on that one thing and drive forward. Again, stay in your lane, and you get to your destination a hell of a lot faster. Now I want to talk about football perspective. I think there's a lot of different perspectives from a player, from a coach, from an outsider, from an insider. But but first, I have to say, looking over this college football season – there's been some excellent coaching jobs that's being done. And, and when I say great coaching jobs, there's a ton of great coaches out there right now in college football. And I'm not trying to say this is the coach that's done the best out of everyone else. But I'm just saying, considering the situation, these coaches, I think, deserve some sort of credit for what they've been able to do, considering what they had to go through and, and what the program was prior. You look at Willie Taggart at South Florida. They're 8-4 and four right now. This is a program that was terrible last year. And once they beat Temple, I mean, they got it into gear. This is a team that nearly made the AAC championship game. Uh, If they would have knocked, if Temple would have lost to UConn, then UCF would have been right there playing Houston, which is amazing in itself. So Willie Taggart has done a great job. You look at Todd Monken at Southern Miss. Southern Miss was dirt terrible last year, you know, and now he has these guys nine and three, winners of six straight games, seven out of the last eight. I mean, Southern Miss is outstanding, and he nearly knocked off Nebraska this year, so he could be sitting at 10-2. and two. So when you look at – and I remember when Southern Miss was the Baltimore Ravens of college football. No one wanted to play Southern Miss. No one. They beat you up defensively. They had a great running game, but that defense was out. They constantly used to churn out pro prospects and all-conference, all-American-type players. Then they fell on hard times. I mean, Southern Miss hasn't been relevant for about a good – five to six years. But Todd Monken has done a great job. They're nine and three. You know, they're going to play in a conference USA championship game. I mean, this is a really good football team and and he's done a great job. You also look at Bob Davey at New Mexico. They were a doormat for a while. And I said in the off season that, you know, watching these guys last year and how they play football and, and talking to Bob Davey, you know, with, with the, the book and how, you know, what he believes in and what he's, his, his goals were for this season and how he was going to go about achieving those goals. I was like, you know what? New Mexico might be a team that, that could be bowl eligible. I said, I think they're going to be bowl eligible this year. And lo and behold, they're sitting at seven and five. They knocked off air force last week, which is impressive. And again, it goes to show you the, what a coach can do when given the opportunity to put in his system, recruit his guys and stay true to the mission. And when you have buy-in from the AD to the boosters, to the, fans you can get a lot of stuff done and it shows you that bob davy is a hell of a coach and he's done a great job at new mexico this year and rocky long out west san diego state i mean they started the season one and three and it, it was a bad one and three they only knocked off san diego fcs uh toreros you know crosstown rival not really a rival but crosstown school and um they knocked off them 
They were sitting at one and three. And now this team rubbed off eight straight victories. They're undefeated in the Mountain West Conference, and they're playing for the Mountain West Conference championship game. So Rocky Long has done a great job with the Aztecs. Blake Anderson at Arkansas State. And you, you, you the reason why Arkansas State is on this list because you've seen over the last four years or five years, I believe it has been, that Arkansas State is essentially a stepping stone for a coach to get a job elsewhere. Like they'll come in one year, do great, and then bounce to another school. And you, we've seen this. The, you know, Blake Anderson is the fourth coach, I believe, in five years at Arkansas State. And this year he got these guys undefeated in the Sun Belt Conference, which is really tough to do, quite honestly, especially now with Georgia Southern and App State in there. You have University of Louisiana has been a pretty good team the last four or five years. And so for Blake Anderson to come in and go undefeated there, they're 8-3. and three. You know, it's impressive. And Willie Simmons, you guys may not know him, but he's the head football coach at Prairie View A&M. And to know Prairie View, you have to understand the history. I want to say from 1991 or 1989 to 1999, they didn't win a game. You know, this was a football team that lost 80 straight football games. 80 straight football games. That's a college football record of ineptitude. 80 straight losses. And so they slowly start to turn around. They've been decent over the last uh, part of a decade. Willie Simmons gets there, and they don't have a spring. This year, they didn't even have a spring. That's very difficult to do in college football. Without a spring, the Prairie View A&M Panthers finished the season 9-2. and two. I mean, to coach a team to finish 9-2 and two, without a spring is impressive. And, yes, they got snubbed by the FCS playoffs, but – I mean, Willie Simmons deserves some credit because, again, not playing with a spring, considering that situation, that program, and you can't really come in and and get stuff going. You don't even have a stadium to play in uh, while they were doing remodeling. You have all this stuff going on, all this stuff building against you and your program. You go out and go 9-2 and and, and play extremely well. You knocked off Southern, uh, which is a tough team in the SWAC. You also knocked off Alcorn State. You know, Grambling was the only loss that you had in your division within your conference. Um, you lose to Texas State, uh, FBS program, Sunbelt School, 9-2. and two. I, I mean, if Willie Simmons doesn't get any consideration for coach of the year, it's a crime. So those are some coaches, I think, that are doing some great jobs, that have done some great jobs this year, and I'm excited to see what they can do building on the success they've had in 2015. As with anything in life, it's all about your perspective and, and how you view things and, and what you're – your point of view is depending on where you're standing and, and things of that nature. And, and football, I think, has a lot of uh, – I think football needs a lot of perspective when you look at what people say and, and how they go about business. And, you know, there's a difference from, let's say, from a player's perspective to a coaching perspective. So let's say if you're a former player and you go into coaching, you have that automatic perspective of, okay, I remember when how we did it when we played. I remember how this – particular drill affected affected me or how this exercise benefited me or how this hurt you know when I did it or how I couldn't do this and how coach tried to teach it to me and what worked for me as far as let's say maybe if you were a screamer a person that responded to the coach's screaming or a person that responded to a coach pulling to the side putting his arm around you you know you you know what what, what it takes uh and you know what you went through and you tend to put that into uh, you're, you're coaching when you're a coach. You also know what it's like to have on equipment and, you know, what moves you can or can't make. And I think so a, a guy that was a former player that's now coaching has all of those things going in his favor. So let's say if a guy that, that didn't play and just jumped into coaching, a lot of times you'll see those guys go from what they read in a book and what they learned from watching the game, and they'll keep it a lot they'll keep it more X's and O based than they would on a personal level. And so they'll heavily rely on what they read and, and what someone told them and, you know, and what they've drawn up, which may not necessarily be a situation where it can physically happen. Like you may be asking someone to do something that they physically can't do, you know, and let's say, let's look at a guy like Todd Haley, who I think played golf, in college and so he didn't play football and he's now you know 
offensive coordinator was a head coach in the NFL, a lot of things he's probably telling players to do, he hasn't had to go. He hasn't had to, you know, he hadn't gone through those things. So maybe something a player is doing, he's saying you're doing it wrong. But the player's like, yo, I can't. There's no way possible I can make this happen. You know, and you see a, a situation where a guy may say, well, I drew it up on a board like this. It's going to work. Yeah, but you also don't understand the human element. You know, the whiteboard may say one thing, but the thing it doesn't do, <laughs> those are not real players up on a whiteboard. They don't think like players. They don't have reactions like real players. That's an ideal situation you've drawn up on a whiteboard. So so what you also get, for, let's say from a positive side, from a guy that hadn't played and now as a coach, you get someone as a little bit more of a student of the game. And that's one thing where you see you may see the situation of a player. Um, you, you hear the saying, a guy that was a great player may not necessarily be a great coach. Because, again, you and I had to go through this too. In, you know, going from a player to a coach, um, you tend to expect people to do things the way you did it, not realizing that you are a different player than they are. You know, physically, mentally, you can't expect everyone to be the same. And you have to really understand that and teach. And those that may not have played that are now in coaching probably tend to be better teachers than those that have played because they spent more time on the, let's say, the books side of it, learning the game, learning different things, where a guy that has played maybe has to, if he's not a, a quote-unquote gym rat or a coach on the field where he, he takes on the, the additional challenge of learning what's going on around him um, and being able to convey that message to everyone else, then he's going to struggle making that transition from playing to coaching where a guy that's just coming straight off out of the bleachers or off the sides off the sideline and coaching, he's a little bit more technical. He's probably able to teach better. And that's why you'll see a guy have success. Like let's say Haley's offense was having success, you know, because he probably explained it perfectly, you know, and, and that's the difference. So it's all about perspective. There's no right or wrong way to do this. It's about, okay, here's my perspective as a former player. Well, here's my perspective as a guy that didn't play, but one that had that studied the game, you know, extensively. Here's what I'm saying. So I think both can work. It's just about perspective. And, and when you look at the, another thing, let's say going from the coaching to scouting, I would say this. Having coached football, it has helped me out tremendously as far as being able to scout talent because now I'm scouting from, let's say, a coach's perspective. A where, you know, you, you're scouting from a point of view where how will I use this player so that way he can have success. So – you tend to see what a player can do more so than what a player can't do. Because as a coach, I'm not going to put you in a situation where you're going to be asked to do something that you can't do physically or because your talent doesn't allow you to. So when I see a guy that has some talent, okay, maybe I can utilize him here and here. And how will I coach him up? Are, are these things where he's, you know, where he's not good at, can they be coached up? Are these things where it's just it's over with, you know, there's no fixing these things. So coming from a coaching perspective to scouting, I think helps helps you out a lot because you then you're finding more answers and you're finding more solutions as instead of finding problems. And that's just all you want to do as a coach. How can you help me win? How can you help this football team get to where we want to be? You know, as opposed to saying you can't do this, you're not fast enough, you you can't get out of your cuts this way, you don't do this very well, you're not strong at the point. Okay, where can I use him to be effective? And if I can't find a way, then maybe I grade him lower down to where he's not a quote-unquote prospect. Now, going from not playing or coaching into scouting, I think that's a, a bit of a tougher sell because now you have a person that's technically looking for the right thing, you know, by what by definition and what they've seen and what someone has told them. Um, you know, so let's say a running back is supposed to have on the inside zone, here are his reads and here's what he's supposed to do. And if they're looking exactly for that and a guy is going off script but is still having success, they'll knock him for, okay, well, he didn't do this, his vision may not be. No, but you can't do that because, again, as a runner, you know sometimes – Things will not go according to plan, and you are taught to run the daylight. And if someone is sitting in that A and B gap on an inside zone and you see that backside C gap available with an over-pursuing linebacker, you're going to hit that backside C gap and try to run the daylight. You can't knock somebody for that. But someone that 
hasn't played or hasn't coached and is now a scout will tend to look for exactly what's written. Let's say for the little nuances you see with offensive line play. You know, some people may not know different techniques of blocking. They may only know, let's say, uh, pull, scoop, fold, uh, trap, kick out. They may, they, may, they may know that, but they may not know how a player can get to that point if they're not doing it in, you know, smoothly out the gate. So they may knock an offense. So you may have a guy that played and coached sitting next to a guy that didn't play and coached. They're both scouts watching the same player and see two completely different things. But it's about their perspective. You know, the guy that didn't play and, and uh, coached and now is scouting is looking at it from a black and white situation. Like, okay, here's what you have to have. Here's what here's the things that you can't do. And I'm going to grade you according to this chart. But the guy that played may know in the course of a game, you know, things change. You may have a feeling out period. You may have a situation where a guy is trying to compensate for maybe a weakness. So it may look a little unconventional. Let's say – uh, a Randall McDaniel in something as simple as his stance where a guy that may have not played or coached will look at that stance and say, that's a knock. He doesn't have good technique, but it's working for him. That's what the guy that has played and coached will say it's working for him. He's effective. He's dominating. So I can't knock him for that. That's just how he is. It's like the guy that throws sidearm. You can't really knock a guy for how he throws does the ball get there? Does it get there accurately on time? And is he not making mistakes? So it's all about perspective. Again, you do need those baseline things that the guy that didn't play or, or coach is looking at, and that's exactly what you want to have mixed in with the guy that has played and coached, understanding the nuance. So, again, it's about perspective, and it's about having the two worlds meet and understand each other's point of view. So that's one, one situation. Now you go from player and coaching – and scouting into the general manager role as opposed to someone that didn't play or scout or coach into the general manager role. Let's say from a player, a coach, scout perspective, let's say you worked your way up the ranks and now you're at the GM role. You have the best, I think personally you have the best point of view because you've been in the trenches, you've coached the players, and now you're at the point where you're, you've, you have evaluated the players and now you're at the point where you're picking guys to help the coach win. Trust you're going to have a, a great communication, a great rapport with the guy that's coaching these players. You should have that great rapport uh, with the guy that's coaching the players. He can he can then freely tell you, here's what I need, here's what I want, and can trust that you can go out and find it. Now, if you're talking to a guy that didn't play, didn't coach, didn't scout, but all of a sudden is now the general manager, and however he got into that role, he's now your GM, your boss, you may have to take extra time as a coach to explain to him certain things. Okay, I may want a linebacker. He can be a little light, but long as he can do a great job in, you know, anchoring and things like that. You may toss out football terms that this guy may not understand. And he may think he understands, or he may have trust in the scouts that's around him, but then you now have to trust those scouts that he brought in. You see, you see where there could be a lot of disconnect, and you see this a lot with NFL programs. You see a lot of disconnect. Because of the situation like that, and, which is why I think when you look at college football and why when you see college football coaches go into the pros, they want that control because essentially that's what they're doing at the collegiate level already with recruiting. They're evaluating, they're scouting, they're deciding which guys they want to offer scholarships to or bring in as preferred walk-ons or what have you. Even down to the walk-ons, they know which walk-ons they want. And which ones they know, okay, well, now nah, we, we don't want this guy on the team. He He's not up to what we want as a player. So they have complete control of the scouting process. Right or wrong, they do it, and they've done it well over the course of the history of college football. Only in pro football you see a situation where they've created this market of, okay, you need checks and balances. You can't do this yourself because you're too busy coaching. Coaches are too busy coaching regardless, whether it's in high school or college, and they're able to get the job done with scouting and recruiting. You can do the same thing because it doesn't take long. You know, a lot of what scouting is doing, you can a lot of what they do, you can get done in an email, in a phone call with the doctors, with the coaches, and, you know, tape trumps all. I mean, you can bring the guy in and work him out and get a good feel for how he moves, but for the most part, you can, you can get 80% of your job done by watching tape and the other 20% just talking to people over the phone or email. 
So a coach can get it done. Again, they do it already at the collegiate level. So having someone as a head coach at the pro level report to someone that hasn't played or scouted or coached is tough because there's a natural disconnect. So I think the best transition for a general manager, he has to have had playing experience, coaching experience, and scouting experience. He can then relay that message and keep that message consistent with the coach and that's where you see a ton of people a ton of people have success. Look at Bill Belichick doing what he does best. Look at the Pittsburgh Steelers and look at the Baltimore Ravens. Look at how those guys don't seem to have terrible seasons. You know, because that line of communication is there. They uh they have the experience, the practical experience. You know, and granted there's exceptions to the rule either side, but I do think having practical experience in certain positions gives you a, a unique perspective. Well, not having practical experience in certain positions gives you a, a unique perspective. I think both opportunities, both uh, sides can work together. I think the one situation where it can't work is when you have a guy that's a GM that really doesn't understand football. And, and that's the problem that you see with a lot of teams that are picking players and are consistently in the top 10. They're consistently, let's say the top 10, let's say they're consistently picking within the top five, top five to eight. You know, that's a problem. You're an NFL team where – you have a better situation than you do in college. College coaches are dependent on 17, 18-year-olds making a decision. At least in the NFL, you can go out and pick who you want to be on the team. In the draft, with undrafted free agents, you can build a really good football team just by drafting well. Because think about it, that's seven players a year. Let's say you bring in another 10 undrafted free agents, 17-player draft class. You whittle that down to maybe like, uh, nine or ten. Let's say you want to keep three undrafted free agents because because of roster size and contracts that are players that are already on the roster. That's ten good players a year that you could bring in. You can bring in. So there should be no reason why a team should be two and fourteen or one and fifteen or winless in the NFL. That's nonsense. That's a lack of communication because there's talent out there. Again, I've seen a lot of talent this year in college football at the Division three level, all the way up to FBS and pro level. There's guys on pro teams right now that should be starting. Heck, we did a video, which you should check out on our website at footballgameplan.com, where we put together an expansion team or an expansion roster for five new teams. So there's guys that are either on the practice squad right now or guys that are not even in the NFL that should be NFL that are really good football players, and you can make five new teams uh, as a result. So I think that's the biggest thing. A guy that's coaching or playing, you know, you can go either way with those, you know, let's say from a player or coach that hasn't had the experience, uh, you know, there's, there's different ways you could skin that cat. But I do think the biggest thing that has to happen if you're a GM, you have to have playing, coaching, and scouting experience. I think that gives you an edge. It gives you an advantage. It gives you an opportunity to go back and forth with your coach hammer out a, a master plan to ensure that he has success and that he's around for a very long time. You don't see the Pittsburgh Steelers flip-flopping coaches all the time. You don't see, you know, the Baltimore Ravens outside of this year because of the injuries being dirt terrible with Ozzie Newsom at the, at the helm. They've done a great job. So I think it can work, but I do think when you look at the situation, let's say from a coaching or a scouting perspective, it's unique in how you can you can decide which one is best for you, but I think both work. But in order to be a great GM, you have to have all three levels of of, of practical experience if you want to be successful. So that wraps up episode nine of Direct Snap Football Perspective. We call this one again. You can find this show archived on our website website at footballgameplan.com/podcast. Hit me up on Twitter with questions, comments, thoughts. At FBall Game Plan. Don't forget to share all of these, these podcasts, man. And that's the one thing. I've seen this more so on Facebook as opposed to Twitter. You know, guys on Twitter have been super supportive. You know, people you don't even know. You know, they'll support you by sharing your work and or liking your work and checking it out later and, and hitting you up privately on, on some of your thoughts, which is great. You know, you want we produce content for feedback. Um but I haven't seen that that much on Facebook, you know, and those are people that you know dearly, you know, people that know you that can physically put a hand on you. You know, they'll they'll share stuff of of guys that they don't know, which may be poor content, but you put out content and it's crickets. But be sure to share this with your friends and, and things like that. And don't think we don't notice. 
I mean, we we notice everything. Uh, you know, it, it it can be demoralizing, but you can't allow stuff to get to you if you're trying to be in the business of what you're doing. You're trying to grow. And we've grown significantly since 2007. We have a bunch of good stuff coming down the pike. Like I said before, individual book projects. I have a book series coming out this summer. So be on the lookout for that. Also, while it's Christmas time and you guys are in the shopping mood, go on our website at footballgameplan.com slash books and check out any one of the three book releases that we have already out there. Stiff Arming Football Myths, Football A Love Story, and What Did Football Teach Me? So, this was episode nine of Direct Snap. I will promise you I'll have of an uh, episode 10 pretty soon. I won't make a, a wait a month to get back to you guys. So share this, listen to it, tell all your friends about it. You know, I think this was a tame Direct Snap. I did drop some jewels in there, but tame Direct Snap anyway. But I enjoyed myself. Good to be back talking with you guys. And I'll catch you on episode 10. And I'm out. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh.